The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Friday, September 24th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, ancient footprints discovered in New Mexico are shaking up what we thought we knew about when humans first arrived in the Americas. Plus, how much plastic do we unknowingly ingest each year? The answer is probably more than you're comfortable with, but it also turns out that babies take in way more of it than adults. And a new, very unauthorized website that will bring you Chick-fil-A on a Sunday. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. 20,000-year-old footprints discovered in White Sands National Park in New Mexico could mean humans came to the Americas several thousand years earlier than previously thought, having to traverse colossal glaciers as they went. The findings published yesterday in the journal Science could completely upend what many thought they knew about humans' arrival in North and South America. Cyprian Ardelian, an archaeologist who was not involved in the study, called it, quote, "...probably the biggest discovery about the peopling of America in a hundred years." End quote. Now, first, some context from the study authors in The Conversation. Quote, Our species began migrating out of Africa around 100,000 years ago. Aside from Antarctica, the Americas were the last continents humans reached, with the early pioneers crossing the now-submerged Bering Land Bridge that once connected eastern Siberia to North America. At times, throughout the Pleistocene Age, which ended 10,000 years ago, large ice sheets covered much of Europe and North America. The water locked in these ice sheets lowered the sea level, allowing people to walk the bridge from Asia through the Arctic to Alaska, but during the peak of the last glacial cycle, their path south into the Americas was blocked by a continental-wide ice sheet. Until now, scientists believed humans only traveled south into the Americas when this ice barrier began to melt, at the earliest 16,500 years ago." End quote. Most archaeologists put the date of humans traveling south into the Americas right around that time, or even earlier at about 13,000 years ago, right at the end of the last ice age, primarily based on evidence found from tools and weapons in Clovis, New Mexico, the oldest artifacts found, which dated back 13,000 years. But quoting the New York Times, starting in the 1970s, some archaeologists began publishing older evidence of humanity's presence in North America. Last year, Dr. Ardelian and his colleagues published a report of stone tools in a mountain cave in Mexico dating back 26,000 years, end quote. So if that report came out last year and actually dates 3,000 years earlier than the 23,000 years ago cited in this new study, why is this one such a big deal? 
Well, first, not everyone was convinced that those stone tools were actually stone tools. Ben Potter, an archaeologist at the Arctic Study Center at Laocheng University in China, told the New York Times they could just be oddly shaped rocks. He says that none of these studies putting humans' arrival in the Americas earlier than 13 to 16,000 years ago are, quote, unequivocal. There are unresolved issues with every single one of them, end quote. But this new study doesn't fuss with tools. It's based on those footprints. Quoting the conversation, Stone tools can be difficult to interpret, and tool-like stones can form via natural processes. Stone tools can also move between layers of sediment and rock. Fossil footprints can't. They are fixed on a bedding plane, and so provide more reliable evidence of exactly when humans left them, end quote. As for the veracity of these footprints' humanity, study author and archaeologist Vance Holliday, who I shall henceforth be calling Doc Holliday, told National Geographic, quote, it's just screamingly obvious. End quote. And then there's the sheer number of footprints discovered here. I mean, we're not talking a couple, not even a couple dozen. Since 2009, an international team of scientists have found thousands of footprints across 80,000 acres in the White Sands. Children, teenagers, some adults, in particular evidence of a mom setting down a baby, and even one person walking in a straight line for a full mile and a half. The fact that most of the footprints are from children and teenagers is part of why there are so many. As the study authors put it, kids and teens are more energetic and tend to leave way more footprints than adults. It's also possible they say that the teens were part of the labor force and being put to work, maybe fetching water and such. It wasn't just the youths that were getting their kicks at Lake Otero and the White Sands, though. There's also footprints from mammoths, giant sloths, camels, and direwolves. Quoting National Geographic, Each imprint was cast and bound millennia ago in gypsum-rich sand whose pale color gives the park its name. Some are eventually exposed by winds whipping around the dunes, but quickly weather away in the elements. Other prints, hidden beneath the sand, are visible only to the trained eye as faint shifts in color at the surface at rare times when the ground is not too wet or dry. These ephemeral appearances have earned the nickname Ghost Tracks, and each footprint marks the place where an ancient relative once stood thousands of years ago. End quote. But how many thousands of years ago has been the big question. Quoting again from the study authors in the conversation, Until now, the problem had been dating these footprints. We knew they were imprinted before the megafauna became extinct, but not precisely when. This changed in September 2019, when the team found tracks with undisturbed sediment above and below them. Within that sediment were layers containing hundreds of seeds of the common ditchgrass Rupia serosa. These seeds, when radiocarbon dated, would reveal the age of the footprints themselves. Analysis revealed the seeds range in age from 21,000 to 23,000 years old, suggesting humans made repeated visits to the site over at least two millennia. End quote. The study also suggests an answer to another question that has stumped scientists for years. Quoting again from the conversation, Using the DNA of modern indigenous Americans, scientists have worked out that their ancestors arrived from Asia in several waves, some of which became genetically isolated. The cause of this isolation is not clear. Now, our new footprint evidence provides an explanation, suggesting the earliest Americans were isolated south of the North American ice sheet, only to be joined by others when that sheet melted, end quote. 
That's just one of many possible discoveries and ramifications this study could have on what we know about ancient human migration, how we think about it, and even how we approach studies. Dr. Potter, the archaeologist who says sometimes stone tools are just weird rocks, thinks this is the most convincing study yet, but still wants to see more data. Quoting the New York Times, He would feel more confident in the extraordinary age of the prince, he said, if there were other lines of evidence beyond the ditchgrass seeds. The seeds could have absorbed older carbon from the lake water, making them seem older than they really are. End quote. Meanwhile, Dr. Ardelian, who found those allegedly 26,000-year-old tools last year, still thinks ancient peoples could have traveled down from Alaska and in from the coasts over 32,000 years ago, crucially before the glaciers from the Ice Age would have been quite so large. And Lauren Davis, an archaeologist at Oregon State University, tends to agree with Dr. Potter, explaining to National Geographic that a phenomenon called hardwater or freshwater reservoir effect could have affected the accuracy of the radiocarbon dating. The team, however, says that they checked for the potential of this effect and found it to be negligible. Overall, even critics seem to agree that this study was incredibly thorough. The team themselves say that they intentionally tried to prove themselves wrong and just couldn't. Michael Rostin, senior staff editor for Science at the New York Times, commented on Twitter, quote, An amazing discovery, but the sad thing is that the same erosive forces that made it possible to spot these footprints is also probably erasing signs of ancient human ancestors we'll never find in the first place. End quote. As much as that's a bit of a Debbie Downer tweet, the Times article does point out that those erosive forces that revealed the footprints are going to erase them, quote, in a matter of months or years, end quote. So a lot is already disappearing and will continue to. There is so much more that the researchers want to know about what the people did on this site. You know, if they lived there full time or just regularly visited, were they hunters? What else did they do day to day? but it's a race against the clock to get as many answers as they can. A new study published this week in the journal Environmental Science and Technology Letters has found that babies' poop contains 10 times as much microplastic as adults. The scientists analyzed dirty diapers, what a job, geez, and found an average of 36,000 nanograms of polyethylene terephthalate, or PET, per gram of waste. They even found PET present in newborn babies' first bowel movements. How is this happening, and what exactly is a microplastic? Here's Wired, quote, Whenever a plastic bag or bottle degrades, it breaks into even smaller pieces that work their way into nooks in the environment. When you wash synthetic fabrics, tiny plastic fibers break loose and flow out to the sea. When you drive, plastic bits fly off your tires and brakes. That's why literally everywhere scientists look, they're finding microplastics, specks of synthetic material that measure less than 5 millimeters long. They're on the most remote mountaintops and in the deepest oceans. They're blowing vast distances in the wind to solely once pristine regions like the Arctic. In 11 protected areas in the western U.S., the equivalent of 120 million ground-up plastic bottles are falling out of the sky each year. End quote. Two of the most common microplastics are PET and polycarbonate, or PC. PET is commonly used for plastic beverage bottles, toiletry bottles, etc., as well as being polyester. PC is a glass alternative for things like eyeglasses. 
Corintha Chalam Kanan from NYU's School of Medicine led a study to assess human exposure to PET and PC. Quoting from Science Daily, the researchers used mass spectrometry to determine the concentrations of PET and PC microplastics in six infant and ten adult feces samples collected from New York State, as well as in three samples of meconium, a newborn infant's first stool. All samples contained at least one type of microplastic. Although average levels of fecal PC microplastics were similar between adults and infants, infant stool contained, on average, more than ten times higher PET concentrations than that of adults. End quote. And Wired adds that to make sure that they were only counting microplastics that came from the infant's guts and not from the diapers, they ruled out the plastic that the diapers are made of, which is polypropylene. But why do babies have so much more PET coming out of them? Because they're exposed to plastic everywhere. I mean, they put everything in their mouths. A lot of their foods and other baby-safe products are often made with, wrapped in, or stored in plastic. And once they're mobile, they crawl around on carpets made of polyester or hardwood floors coated in polymers. All of these things, even the fabrics and synthetic textiles, shed microplastics like a Labrador. Not to mention, babies drink out of plastic bottles and sippy cups, which, by the way, a study published last year found that heating formula in a plastic bottle erodes the plastic and could give babies a hit of several million microplastic particles a day. So, you know, heat the formula in another container first. And then there's the very air we're breathing indoors. Quoting again from Wired, Indoor dust is also emerging as a major route of microplastic exposure, especially for infants. In general, indoor air is absolutely lousy with them. Each year, you could be inhaling tens of thousands of particles. Several studies of indoor spaces have shown that each day in a typical household, 10,000 microfibers might land on a single square meter of floor, having flown off clothing, couches, and bedsheets. Infants spend a significant amount of their time crawling through the stuff, agitating the settled fibers, and kicking them up into the air. End quote. Yikes. My big question with the study is how our microplastic intake compares to previous generations. I mean, I doubt there's an exact dirty diaper digging study from the 70s we could compare this to, but eventually I'd like to find some kind of data. What we can look to is the acceleration of plastic use in every aspect of our lives. So, plastic, as a word, comes from the Greek plastikos, which means capable of being shaped or molded, and plastos, which means molded. As a concept, the combining of natural materials as organic polymers goes back all the way to Mesoamerica in 1600 BCE. The first fully human-made plastic from cellulose treated with nitric acid was in 1855. The first fully synthetic plastic came about in 1907, and the explosion of different types of plastics being mass-produced was a post-war phenomenon. Since the 50s, more and more of our lives have been wrapped in plastic. But a brief footnote, plastic surgery also refers to those Greek roots of molding, in this case the molding of the flesh. It has nothing to do with synthetic plastics being used as part of the surgical process. In fact, the term first appeared in print in 1839, nearly 70 years before the very first synthetic plastics. But now that we live, breathe, and apparently crap out plastic all the time, what does it mean for our health, and in light of this new study, for the long-term health of infants? Well, we don't completely know yet, but lots of scientists all over the world are working as quickly as possible to find out. Quoting again from Wired, 
Different varieties of plastic can contain any of at least 10,000 different chemicals, a quarter of which are of concern for people, according to a recent study from researchers at ETH Zurich in Switzerland. Microplastics may contain heavy metals like lead, but they also tend to accumulate heavy metals and other pollutants as they tumble through the environment. They also readily grow a microbial community of viruses, bacteria, and fungi, many of which are human pathogens. Of particular concern are a class of chemicals called endocrine-disrupting chemicals, or EDCs, which disrupt hormones and have been connected to reproductive, neurological, and metabolic problems, for instance, increased obesity. The infamous plastic ingredient bisphenol A, or BPA, is one such EDC that has been linked to various cancers, end quote. And it's not just that babies are apparently being exposed to way more microplastics than adults, but also that they may be more vulnerable to adverse effects at that crucial early stage of development. Now, while these findings are certainly alarming, remember that it's not a brand new phenomenon, and while there certainly could be adverse effects, it's not an immediately dire situation. And there are ways to mitigate your baby's exposure. Use a glass bottle to heat and prepare formula, and then switch to plastic once it's at room temperature. Limit your use of plastic when possible, like for containers, wrappers, etc., and keep up with vacuuming as much as you can so all the places your baby is crawling around on has as few microplastics as possible. We live in a plastic world now, and there are so, so many reasons to reduce our plastic use, but it's an incredibly tough thing to do, especially while parenting an infant or a toddler. If you've ever wanted Chick-fil-A on a Sunday, or just don't like the company because its owner Dan Cathy donates large sums to anti-LGBTQ plus organizations and you want to see it made fun of, you're in luck. Mischief, the art collective responsible for viral hits like Lil Nas X's Satan Shoes, an astrologically-based investment planner, and the sword made out of melted-down AR-15s that Grimes brought to the Met Gala, which, by the way, is a service available to anyone, has dropped their latest project, Sunday Service. For $6.66, they'll deliver you a real Chick-fil-A sandwich on a Sunday. Chick-fil-A's are famously closed on Sundays in keeping with the founder's Southern Baptist beliefs about not working on the Sabbath, and this closure doubles as a clever way to recruit a lot of employees with similar beliefs, because people who are very committed to their church life know that they'll never be scheduled to work on a Sunday if they work at Chick-fil-A. But anyways, Mischief's chicken sandwiches are bought the day before from a legit Chick-fil-A, and according to Daniel Greenberg from Mischief, quote, Kept warm overnight with a professional chef putting some finishing touches on them Sunday before they go out. End quote. The site notes that orders are first come, first serve, and it's unclear how wide the delivery zone is. Mischief is based in Brooklyn, New York, but the sign-up form told me that even my address in next-door Queens was out of the delivery zone. Quoting AV Club, the website cites Colossians 2.16, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to the Sabbath, and includes a manifesto which states that certain American values go hand in hand. For example, conservative Christianity pairs perfectly with a correspondingly devout faith in the free market. 
AV Club continues, The website itself is great, even if you have no interest whatsoever in trying to get a secondhand sandwich. It's all in red and black, features wonderful gifs of things like demon poking a chicken with its pitchfork or a sandwich with a pointy tail and horns, and it reworks the Chick-fil-A logo into an avian 666, end quote. Mischief is always one to push the envelope, so turning the most well-known Christian franchise into a demon-bedecked operation is right in keeping with their usual antics. I'm sure Chick-fil-A will have something to say about this, but, you know, at the end of the day, Mischief will be buying up a bunch of their sandwiches, so I guess they can't be too upset. As an aside, I'll drop a link in the show notes about one of the organizations Chick-fil-A owner Dan Cathy has been donating a lot of money to recently. It's specifically the one behind all of the boilerplate legislative proposals in over 30 U.S. states targeting LGBTQ plus youth. That said, most big corporations have ties to organizations doing work that many people disagree with. Trying to live by your values in this corporate world is as tough as trying to go totally plastic-free. I'm not saying we shouldn't try and shouldn't be informed, just that it's tough and you gotta do you. And if you want to eat those Chick-fil-A sandwiches, because dang does my Texan-raised stomach love them, now you can even have them on Sundays and probably piss off the company's owners while you do it. Well, that was a pretty long episode, so that is it for this week. Hopefully that'll tide you over for the weekend. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday.